When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. being it Wednesday to enter our football time machine go back to the decade that we of course haphazardly label the noughties this is the 2000s and we're going to go back to the 2000s and back to the football of its time this is the Naughties Nostalgia Podcast episode 54 where we'll be discussing your picks for the best ever Champions League shocks of course as the Champions League gears up for its second match day this week we'll also be looking at Liverpool after Rafael Benitez. Of course, a timely reminder that we have Sports Social Podcast Network production now three days a week on there with all the usual What If Football podcasty goodness as well. Bonus content on our Patreon page if you're enjoying podcasts like these where we'll be covering modern football every Friday and Monday as well as some nostalgic bits in midweek and a mailbag of your What If suggestions. But now it's time to get stuck in to the noughties. Without further ado, let's crack on with our suggestions. So we do have a number of picks here for Bayern Munich versus Barcelona. Fitting that they played a couple of weeks ago now. This is being recorded on the morning of that first match day. So we, uh, I don't know anything, so I'm speaking to you from the past. But this is not the 8 that we saw in 2020 this is not the 10 nil that we saw a couple of weeks ago maybe um maybe not but this is the semi-final in 2013 again that Bayern Munich won this is suggested by JCL 0310 the FT LOL podcast and FCB Marines and probably one of the more shocking moments of the early part of the 2010s anyway the 2010s for the most part, before we get to the, that absolute insane campaign where uh, Roma beat Barcelona, you get the year after where Liverpool beat Barcelona, etc, etc. And before then, it was very predictable, the same team sort of inhabiting the latter stages. You got Dortmund getting the probably the standout here in this, this season, the 2012-13 season. This alternative semi-final, though, was... Uh, an absolute classic. Everyone remembers the the seven up jokes because, of course, this semi final finished seven nil on aggregate, and it was the classico versus the classico clubs. And German teams proved to be the more dominant, as the final would be Bayern Munich versus Dortmund, as opposed to the classico final, which has shockingly never happened, really, considering that they're two of the biggest clubs in world football. And by this point. That was probably the only thing that would tip the rivalry over the edge they'd met in the semi-finals in 2011. Alas, it wouldn't happen. Pep Guardiola was gone after the burnout of the Classico rivalry. As a result, he was gone. But Barcelona, let's not beat around the bush, they still had a great team in that midfield three that lined up in the first leg. 
Busquets, Iniesta, Xavi, you've got Lionel Messi up front, Pedro and Alexis Sanchez in their primes either side of him. The defence, PK was in there, Jordi Albert, I mean, Danny Alves, what a team that they had assembled. Obviously no Pep influence in on the sidelines, but definitely... Um, from afar in his sabbatical, they, they arguably should have won four Champions Leagues in a row in this time. Of course, they would win in 2009 and 2011. They were only stopped by absolutely out of this world generational displays in the semi-finals of 2010 and 2012 against the likes of Inter Milan and Chelsea. By and though they did no such thing. They were no means, by no means defensive. You've got the likes of Frank Ribery, Iron Robin, Thomas Muller, what a three to have in behind Mario Gomez. And in their prime, you've got one of the better defences that we'd probably see in the 2010s. You've got David Alaba, you've got Dante, who had an absolutely superb game, by the way. You've got Jerome Botang and Philip Lahm. Dante, probably the less heralded of those four now, um, but he was absolutely magnificent in this game. Watching it back, he assisted Thomas Muller for the first. Mario Gomez was fairly similar, but offside at the third goal as well features such an obvious foul from Thomas Muller. So half of the goals are kind of Ill- illegitimate. But um, those final goals seemingly finished 4 0, seemingly rendered a comeback impossible. This was, of course, before the age of. Barcelona coming back from four goals down to beat PSG. This was before Liverpool coming from three goals down to beat Barcelona. And so many other comebacks that we've seen over the past, what, since eight years since. Of course, we're living in Thomas Muller's peak here. It was Jupp Heynckes' farewell, which ended with the treble for Bayern Munich. And even though Bayern Munich is such a huge team, it, it stands alone does Barcelona really in terms of how good they were at the time to simply swat away a team like Real Madrid domestically in some instances of course Real Madrid won the league once but Barcelona were just wholly dominant in a league which features an Atletico Madrid team who weren't too bad either they would win the league the season after of course but still Barcelona were wholly dominant in Spain in Europe they should have won four in a row even given the teams when taking that into account even Bayern Munich beating them obviously the extent of the win of course a bit like the 8-2 win last year it obviously ranks the shock up a little bit higher because any team any big team losing 7-0 is a huge shock no matter what the opponents are say if it was reversed 7-0 over two legs Bayern getting beat by Barcelona by that scoring would still be a huge shock nonetheless and we'll stick with Barcelona we've got a lot of Barcelona suggestions in this because they've been uh, quite a fruitful topic for this sort of thing JCL 0310 and Radio Techers also suggest Liverpool versus Barcelona. Of course, the first leg, Barcelona looked out of sight. They booked into the final. Messi scored an absolutely ridiculous free kick and Barcelona win 3-0. Of course, Ousmane Dembele should have made it four at the death. Would that have made a much of a difference? Obviously, four goals and three goals. You have got the element of extra time. Obviously, away goals still play a part. So it just the extra goal adds to the adds to the jeopardy for Liverpool a little bit. But let's be real: a second leg at any deficit at Anfield is is never going to be a foregone conclusion. And especially after especially after Divock Origi scores inside like six or seven minutes, as he did. By that point, you've got Anfield roaring. You've got the second half played at the Cop towards the cop and Genie Wijnaldum putting an absolutely incredible performance scoring two goals and with the game 
with the game at 3-0 after 55 minutes played even, if I was to do a what-if on Ousmane Dembele scoring in the first leg, I still think with two goals to score in you know, 35 minutes, I think they, they obviously they score through Origi with Trent Alexander-Arnold taking the corner quickly. It was only going to go one way in this universe. In an alternate universe, I still think that Liverpool would have taken Barcelona to extra time, may have even won it in normal time, 5-0, who knows. And let's not forget, Mo Salah was missing from this game, which is absolutely incredible, really, when you consider this time Mo Salah was by far and away the best Liverpool player they had. He was scoring 30-plus goals in the Premier League. He was the best player on form, maybe in the world, maybe maybe slightly behind Messi and Ronaldo to that extent, but he was performing to his absolute peak, still is, you could argue. Um, but for Barcelona, it was part two of three really shambolic Champions League exits and JCL 0-3-1-0 must hate Barcelona because he suggests part one of this series, Roma knocking Barcelona out in 2018's quarterfinal. And of course, this is part of these extraordinary comebacks that we'd learned to live with in the Champions League over the past sort of five, six years at a push. Um, Barcelona had won by three again at home in the first leg. Roma had got an away goal through Edin Dzeko, but Roma, unlike Liverpool, they weren't really, I wouldn't say they're notorious for these big European nights. Big club, let's not forget, they made a final of their own in 84. They've got a huge history, you know, the Olympico. Dzeko got the away goal scores in the return leg. Again, with Barcelona scores very early into that return leg, six minutes, seven minutes in, and Roma have to wait for a Daniele Di Rossi penalty, but with the only needing the three-goal win, unlike Liverpool needing a four-goal win, its stage is set there. With around the similar the goals are eerily similar, really. Um perhaps that speaks to Barcelona's mentality at the time under Ernesto Valverde, perhaps that's well, it's doubtlessly why he got sacked in the end, obviously, before the uh, absolutely abhorrent quarterfinal exit the, in 2020. Um, but De Rossi scores a penalty roughly with 30 minutes to go. And then, like with the Liverpool game the year after, the tidies with Roma, despite Roma not being this giant of a club, they'd got to a couple of quarterfinals here and there, you know, against Man United invariably in the decade prior. And of course, then you get the Peter Drury moment. It's why... When you type this game into YouTube or Google or any search engine, the autocomplete puts Peter Jury at the end. And uh, it's obviously for his his commentary for the third goal. Manolas, 82 minutes, gets a head on the corner. Roma win 3-0. The Greek god in Rome, Mount Olympus, etc., etc. All those um, analogies. Of course, Roma go on to the semi-final. And again, like when they got really far in 84, they would lose to Liverpool in one of the better games in terms of high scoring that I've ever seen really in um, to such a quality in the semi-final. Going back a bit to the actual noughties to discuss um, Deportivo versus AC Milan suggested by JCL 0310 and Chris Kelly. We did speak about this at great length um, two weeks ago in the best Champions League matches but in short you've got Milan they would win the 2003 Champions League final they would also win the 2007 final they get to the final in 2005 as we know the team they are just simply gargantuan which we'll get onto in a second with our next suggestion Deportivo's team was good of course but in 2004 for me I think they would be on their peak I only say this probably by out of a little bit of shots out and it's been a Manchester United fan because they terrorised United in 2001-2 beating them twice home and away obviously United would um, beat them in the quarterfinals but still the group stage defeats home and away were very 
harrowing for a young supporter. Obviously, the likes of Walter Pandiani, Juan Carlos Ferron, Valeron, rather, Albert Luque and France got the goals in this match, which again is another overturning of a significant loss in the first leg 4-1, like Roma did in the previous um, suggestion. And, of course, Deportivo would not 4-0. I personally have their peak Deportivo, that is between 2000 and 2003, of course, rising to win the league title in 2000, getting those first tastes of Champions League football. And they did make a semi-final here, which was their best record in the uh, in the Champions League, as it were. They would make their final Champions League appearance um, the season after in the group stages, um, but ultimately lose to Jose Mourinho, of course, and Porto. Moving on to a fantastic, obviously, suggestion. We had this a couple of weeks ago as well, in terms of the best games, Liverpool versus AC Milan. But in terms of the shock, it's just Liverpool's 2005 win. Patamon fan 1991 and the Matt Attack UK suggested this one. And I think Liverpool obviously winning the Champions League doesn't sound too shocking in of itself. But lining up the two teams in the final, let's do it. So you've got Dida versus Jersey Duda. You've got Cafu versus Steve Finnan. Yapstam versus Jamie Carragher. Alessandro Nesta versus Sam Herpia. Paolo Maldini versus Jimmy Traore. Andrea Perla versus Xabi Alonso. Gennaro Gattuso versus Louis Garcia. Clarence Sadoff versus John Anarisa, Kaka versus Steven Gerrard, Andrei Shevchenko versus Harry Kuehl, Hernan Crespo versus Milan Barros. And as a Man United fan, maybe a slight bit biased, but I would struggle to put any of those Liverpool players in that Milan side in terms of lining them up as they did on the night, at least in the second half. Anyway, with Steven Gerrard in more of a 10 position, Kaka over Steven Gerrard is probably the closest you get really... Maybe you'd have to put Steven Jarrett up against a Gattuso or a Sadoff for even a Liverpool player to even get into that Milan squad. Plus, you've also got Milan going 3-0 up, um, which obviously, as a shock then, from a different perspective, from the perspective of half-time, it's an entirely different kettle of fish, isn't it really? It's got to rank highly after that as a shock. Of course, Liverpool would beat you know the likes of Juventus, Chelsea to get their arguably better teams as well at the time. And it was only a matter of time before we uh, get to this suggestion. Part three of the Barcelona Champions League implosion. And this was the implosion in a microcosm, really. Barcelona 2, Bayern Munich 8, suggested by Joe and Radio Techers there. And Barcelona only got two goals because of a ridiculously high Bayern Munich line, the shank of an own goal from David Alaba as well. A lovely spot of symmetry here where it was 4-1 at half time and 8-2 at full time, which is always nice to see, isn't it? Um, like a 1-0 into 2-0. It's lovely, nice neatness about the thing. Um, for me, the really real galling thing for Barcelona wasn't that they conceded eight goals. It wasn't, you know, the complete downing of tools from certain players. It wasn't the, the high wages, the transfer business beforehand. It was the fact that part of that transfer business, the poster boy for what was gone wrong at Barcelona. Felipe Coutinho, the nail in the coffin really for this match was him scoring twice. Still contracted to Barcelona, scoring twice for Bayern Munich. Obviously out on loan to Bayern Munich and he scored goals number seven and eight. Um, yeah, absolutely shambolic. Obviously to proceed this, you've got Neymar going to PSG for 222 million euros. PSG and Neymar moved to the final um, that year. Of course, still beaten by Bayern Munich, but still... Um, those, that money that was gifted to Barcelona ultimately ruined them, really, because then you've got, obviously all the clubs are on high alert, they know Barcelona, they're a rich club anyway, but still you've got a surplus, essentially 222 million euros. 
So then Barcelona, with that money, spend nearly 300, uh, 400 million euros, spend 370 million euros in total on Ousmane Dembele, Antoine Griezmann, Felipe Coutinho. Coutinho flopped. Still there at Barcelona, but doesn't play nearly as regularly as he what should. Um, Ousmane Dembele, he has um, constantly been niggled by injuries there and hasn't really come to the fore, really, as what he uh, promised when he was at Borussia Dortmund. Antoine Griezmann left this summer for Atletico Madrid for a third of um, the... Well, he's on loan initially, but the the fee will rise to €40 million on, um, if they buy him back. So they've bought him for €120 million presuming that he would fit in alongside Messi when he wouldn't. And um, Atletico bought him back for a third of the price, which is fantastic business. And then, of course, this led to Lionel Messi joining Neymar at PSG. Barcelona now lining up with Luke de Jong and Martin Brathwaite um, up front, um, which is a nightmare even for fans of Newcastle and Middlesbrough, who they pl- formerly played for in the Premier League. Uh, so it goes to show... Although, yeah, it was... Um, on the night, Barcelona, going into this match, I was expecting a Bayern Munich win, which, you know, it wouldn't have been shocking, a two-goal, three-goal win. But eight goals to two is shocking. It's like Man United, it's perfect. Man United-Arsenal in 2011. You're expecting a Man United win, potentially by a couple of goals, fairly comfortable in the end. But 8-2 is just an, it's such an odd scoreline, really, because you've got the quality to score two goals. You've also got the lack of quality, the lack of cohesion to concede eight. It's really a, a phenomenal scoreline to lose by, which sort of shows up a lot of ills in the squad and obviously it did here as well. Going back a year, we'll go to 2019 and to one of the finest Champions League games, really. Ajax 2, Spurs 3, suggested by James F.F. I'd say that the squads here were evenly split. Obviously, you've got Harry Kane missing from Spurs, so it's even more evenly split, really. But if you saw the scores across two legs with the players involved, surely no shock, really. You've got Spurs have probably surpassed Ajax by this point. Obviously, there's financial disparities between Eredivisie and the Premier League obviously play a part in that, even though Ajax are European royalty, won it all, won four Champions Leagues. Perhaps it would have been a shock between the mid-90s and 2010-ish, maybe. Um, but here, Ajax were effectively 3-0 put home in the second half, um, which, of course, it's like the Liverpool-Milan game from 2005's final. We have Lucas Maurer, and he just plays out of his skin. The determination to score that second goal is just a thing of beauty, really. And, of course, scores that last-minute goal. The screams from the commentary box on BT Sport, incredible, legendary. Um, probably the greatest night in Spurs' history, or recent history at least. Um, debuting team in the final. Obviously, Spurs would go on to lose it, but regardless, they still have this moment. Of course, the round before that, the uh, Man City one, which is less of a shock, really, because it's two English teams in Europe over two legs, and it's very nail-bitingly close. It's not a shocker of an 8-2 or a 7-0 that we've seen elsewhere. Quite a forgotten one here from Maracas Flu is Ruben Kazan versus Barcelona in the 2009-10 groups. He says that a win at the new Camp for Ruben Kazan left Barcelona with five points from four games. Ruben Kazan had never played in the European Cup before. Barcelona, of course, won the sextuple the year prior, that six trophies in one season. And yeah, I guess it is because around 
second season for Pep Guardiola, you're expecting another steamrolling, and they do get to the semi-finals, as we discussed. We are doing a bit of battle and a battering on this show today, but this is what the suggestions were. Uh, Ruben Kazan were quite bizarre in this competition, really. They'd hauled Inter Milan to a 1-1 draw at home as well. Um, Inter Milan's own failures at home to Dynamo Kiev left the group fairly even after four games. You've got Inter Milan topping the group with six points, Ruben Kazan with five, Barcelona with five in third place, and Dynamo Kiev uh, last with four points. Um, around this time, I think Barcelona still adapting their game to Zlatan Ibrahimovic. It's the early part of the season. They'd not really, um, they'd not ditched the philosophy of him just yet, but um, teething problems to say the least. And it sounds bizarre, really, when you look at the player profile, the age profile of both players here, but the Samuel Eto'o, Zlatan Ibrahimovic swap in 2009 went the way of Eto'o and Inter Milan, really. Of course, they won the treble, so that, that means they did win it overall, it beating Barcelona on the way as it was. Um, but when you transplant the the players onto the squads, it weakened Barcelona, despite Zlatan probably being at a higher level at that point to Eto'o in terms of age, in terms of you know ability. And then in turn strengthened into Milan. And of course, the 2010 semi-final encapsulates this Samuel Eto'o going to the wing to be a team player. Would Zlatan do that? I'm not too sure about that. And from this, I think you probably have Pep Guardiola learning from this. Zlatan was one of the few players, of course, Barcelona have players of quality with Xavi, Iniesta, Messi, etc, etc, etc. But they are carefully constructed players of quality in a team that gels together. Zlatan Ibrahimovic was like a nuclear bomb up front. He did not work with Messi. He did not work with the sort of satellites around the players up front. He did not at all. Um, and obviously, Ruben Kazan going to the new camp. Obviously, a huge occasion. Probably the biggest game in their in their history, really. At least in Europe, uh, winning two one there was probably part and parcel of Barcelona's teething problems at the time. And of course, as a result, they would move the likes of Zlatan on, and they would get in players more suited to their system, perhaps not as good as Latan, but in the end, Pedro and Alexis Sanchez, either side of Lionel Messi up front, ended up winning the Champions League the following year. And of course, obviously Pep Guardiola has since learned from this and we're seeing it today with Manchester City with um, false nine over the past two years, which looks like it's going to win them the Premier League again. Who knows? But we'll see in May, won't we? Fuel 15 suggests two winners from a bygone era here with uh, Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa. But first, Forest, um, to put it this way, Forest are the only club to win more Champions Leagues or European Cups than domestic leagues. And their first European Cup game was arguably their biggest, played Liverpool. They didn't play too many. Obviously, this was a different format. It was a simple 32-team knockout from the first round. And... They'd face FC Köln in the semi-finals. No pushovers really, but Brian Clough was really gate crashing the league. It was a, it was a similar style in Europe. Really, you got Ajax and Hamburg. Ajax firmly established as one of the better teams, slightly off from that generation because Johan Neskins had gone to Barcelona. So had Johan Cruyff. Hamburg were up and coming, a bit like Forest really in the final of the second season. Hamburg. Maybe favourites, maybe had the better team. Who knows? And that one, those were the four teams really that were the, the teams that Forest beat. And you could argue that all four were real shocks, particularly Liverpool and Ajax. Um, but when there's such an unshakable force like the team of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor for such a distinct time, some things are just more powerful than players like we just discussed Zlatan Ibrahimovic at Barcelona. Sometimes 
whacking just the best players in the best team just doesn't work. You've seen that with Real Madrid with the Galacticos most famously most recently. PSG to an extent at least, although they're uh, slightly teaming that with actual strategy in the transfer market most recently. And we're going to Aston Villa probably, well, inarguably really a bigger shock than Nottingham Forest, although Nottingham Forest now is probably a lesser name than Aston Villa, but in 1982, in the world of Forest and Liverpool dominating the league, perhaps a bigger shock was that Aston Villa won the league title to actually qualify for the European Cup. And in the final, they came up against Bayern Munich, they came up against Orgenthaler in defence, came up against Paul Breiner, Rummenigge, up front. And Bayern was supposed to win title number four, weren't they, here in Rotterdam in the 1982 final. Of course, you get Peter Wiff scoring in the final. Probably one of the more bigger final shocks in uh, Champions League European Cup history. Of course, Bayern Munich would then go on to lose the final in even more shocking circumstances five years later, although to Porto, although a bigger club than Aston Villa, arguably. Um, the way that they lost it, winning 1-0 and then losing two goals in the final 15 or so minutes, that's a quite a big shock. Uh, to an extent, you've got Milan beating Barcelona 4-0 in 94, although Milan coming off those Arrigo Saki days of the 80s and 90s, winning back-to-back European Cups, this was Barcelona and the dream team and Milan were missing Costa Curta, Berese. It was a huge shock at the time, of course. 4-0 amplifies that as well. And I can't think of too many more final shocks where you go into... The Champions League finals are usually fairly um, even anyway. And um, these, bless up, 1982 and 1987, maybe at a push 1994 with uh, Milan as discussed. But aside from that, there's not really many... I don't think, Nottingham Forest in 1980, I suppose you could count that being Hamburg, but Hamburg weren't European champions. Forest had already had the um, the experience of winning the European Cup as well. So it's hard to, um, hard to say with that one, really. Another shocking um, champion, really, from 2004, the last probably, I'd say, non-elite club in Porto. Like, elite means... Bayern Munich, Liverpool, AC Milan, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United, Juventus, etc, etc. Porto 2004, Chelsea of course as well. Porto in 2004, although they didn't really spring that many shocks, did they really? But the, them, their name on the trophy, obviously I think it coincided with a change in format, really. This was suggested by Dean Pope and Joe. Um, perhaps the one shock was the last 16 defeat against Manchester United famous for that Jose Mourinho touchline sprint of course after the final the goal in the final minute by Costinha they didn't particularly beat anyone huge on the way to do it they got one point off two games from Real Madrid in the groups obviously that you get that win over Man United Man United at the time though they weren't fantastic the English champions but they, they were firmly on a transitional couple of years there and um, of course, after that game, you get Jose Mourinho needing Leon and Depo and Monaco wins to win the European Cup. All for me around this time, second tier clubs in terms of Europe at this time, slightly beneath the elite. And in the quarterfinals, it does help that you get Arsenal, Milan, Real Madrid all tumbling out of the other games in the quarterfinals, which leaves Monaco had never won a European Cup. Deportiva never won a European Cup, Chelsea never won a European Cup and didn't have Mourinho obviously at this time, they would after this. Um, so they were all, I'd say Porter there, maybe to an English press, Chelsea were the favourites, um, would get knocked out by Monaco of course. But Porto had the team, they had the manager, so less of a shock in that sense, it's more of a shock that 
the uh, all the big names sort of dropped out quite early on. Like I say, I think it was a format shift. You do have the teams going from two group phases to then playing what we know now as the last 16 knockout from the groups. And I do think that helped part of anyway. Obviously, the path to the final did help as well. And maybe why you see big names falling, dropping like flies in the earlier stages. We'll go back to the 90s for a couple of suggestions from Chris Kelly here. We've got first Bromby beating Bayern Munich 2-1 in 1998. And for me, from a nostalgic standpoint, this is perhaps my most favourite group in the Champions League ever, really. Um, we covered the Manchester United and Barcelona games from this group on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash what if football, if you want to listen to me talk about great games for half an hour or so. Delve into that for more detail. So we've got Bayern Munich, recently European Cup winners in 96, Otmar Hitzfeld coaching them. You've got Barcelona, recent Cup winners, Cup winners in 97, Louis van Gaal coaching them. Man United dominant in England, Alex Ferguson coaching them, maybe should have won a European Cup already, but they're getting closer. And Bromby had a few stints in Europe, most notably um, the 87 European Cup quarterfinal. And f- quite frankly, there was no reason for Bromby to pick up a single point in this. <laughs> They'd lose 2-0 to Barcelona twice. They'd get 11 goals shipped past them by Manchester United. And especially after a late Marcus Babel goal in Denmark, it seemed impossible for Bromby to take anything from this game. And of course, two goals in three minutes late on. Bromby got there only three points. Of course, um, topping the group after the draw between Man United and Barcelona. And for a time there, they, they, they were looking as though they might qualify, obviously, two games in a row to Man United. 11 goal ships that put pay to that in, the, in an age of only one team guaranteed to go through in a group. And, um, of course, Bayern Munich, Man United, the teams that went through, the teams that would be in the final in 1999. Another classic from the late 90s is in the group stages as well. Dynamo Kiev winning 4-0 at the new Camp. And again, we just can't stop that Barcelona bashing, can we? Uh, Barcelona just lost um, Bobby Robson as manager, Ronaldo as a player, Lou Van Gaal was in. Um, they weren't at the best <laughs> of places uh, in Europe, did all right domestically, didn't they? I think they won the league that year in 98. Um, in the reverse game, in match day three, Dynamo Kiev beat Barcelona 3-0 in Kiev. Um, in the world of one team through, like in 98, and the two best second place teams through, Barcelona were effectively already out when Dynamo Kiev returned to Barcelona. They got one point from three. They'd obviously lost that famous match against Newcastle. Tino Asprias got in a hat-trick in that one. And um, in quite a special group, really, with PSV Eindhoven also in it, which is where Barcelona got their one point from from the first four games. And Andrei Shevchenko lit up the group even further. Hat-trick at the new Camp firmly announced himself to uh, European audiences there. Of course, Dynamo Kiev would make the quarterfinals, losing to Juventus. They'd make the uh, semifinals, losing to Bayern Munich in 99. And just, that was the closest they ever got, really to um, European Cup glory at least obviously a big powerhouse in the mid 80s in 86 most uh, notably for that one and finally from Chris Kelly Celtic versus Barcelona the game that brought tears to Rod Stewart's eyes of course and uh, most fondly remember for Tony Watt's goal later on of course this was in the 2012-13 season again wrapping things up with more Barcelona bash in the same year as Barcelona's lost to Bayern Munich in the semi-finals and this was just coming off, it was one of the first games Barcelona had had since Pep Guardiola left in Europe. 
and um, a special night at Paradise. Celtic's only win over Barcelona in their history, at least in the European Cup. And um, the atmosphere, I think probably the best that Britain's ever seen or might ever see in Europe. You've got obviously big games at Anfield. To an extent, big games at Old Trafford as well, but this was something else. This was akin to the England games at the Euros, most recent Euros, in terms of, you know when an atmosphere is good when the camera's rattling, if it's at a big ground as well, like Celtic Park or Wembley, for example, Anfield to an extent. You know the game's got a bit of atmosphere to it when that happens and that happened again and again and I don't know how Barcelona didn't win but obviously pleased for Celtic that it did and obviously Barcelona semi-finals would have to wait until 2015 to win the European Cup for the final time. Of course that concludes today's show. We did promise a bit of uh, team profile on Liverpool with post Rafa Benitez but we'll uh, save that for next week. We'll put it in the back pocket until next week or perhaps the week after, because it is the international break the week next week, and we'll be discussing the 2006 World Cup. And on an unrelated note, um, the worst World Cups in history. Um, 2006 for me, one of my favourites, despite in the record books not being that great overall, and um, I think it was because it was the first World Cup for me that I... I'd, I my first World Cup was 98, and that will always be the best for me. 2002 was okay, you get sweep, swept up in the England emotion. 2006, England were supposed to be even better and I missed so much school watching this World Cup and I think that's why it sticks in the mind a little bit. And we'll be delving into a few other World Cups, 2010, another example for perhaps being the worst World Cup in history, but we'll, uh, of course, get into it. Um, next week, of course, this will be on the Sports Social Podcast Network, of course, which is of we. We are a production of, and if you're enjoying these podcasts, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash whatiffootball for bonus content five days a week covering old football, current football, and our what-if scenarios in a lovely, neat little 15-20 minute mailbag as well for you, as well as, obviously, more fleshed out what-if alternate football universes on our YouTube channel seven days a week. But until then, until next time you hear this voice, silly. Network.